Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome back to Bag Rats. It's been a crazy few weeks for me, so I'm glad to bring you guys a pretty cool conversation that I was able to have this week with Ian Andrew. Ian is a world-renowned golf architect, and he's done some really cool original work as well as some restoration work on um, you know courses done by Tillinghast, Donald Ross, Walter Travis, uh, and you know. Today we spoke about a Bendelow course called Quag Field Club. It's a little nine-hole track in Long Island, um, and it's absolutely stunning. Uh, you know, my interest in this course was peaked when you know I heard about some of the really interesting restoration work that Ian was doing over there the last few years. I was thinking about the conversation I had with Corey Harris about the Washington Club a few episodes back um, in in Connecticut, and you know it really piqued my interest that conversation in in some of the finer nine hole tracks uh, in America. So you know I'm going to be doing a few more of these, but thought this conversation was awesome, and Ian had a lot of really cool insight to to offer about Quag and you know what makes a, a nine hole course such as that one you know so special. So here's Ian Andrew on Bagrats. All right, welcome to uh, Bagrats, Ian. Thanks so much for uh, coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. I'd actually love to start with what's going on up by you. You're you're Toronto based. Um, what's going on in Canada? If you could tell us a little bit about the nightmare that you guys are living through. I've read a little bit about it, but obviously don't know all the details. So we actually we've gone through waves like everybody else, but our waves have been pretty mild in comparison. We sort of were all proud of ourselves the first time, but unfortunately our third wave is dramatically worse than any of the others. And this is Ontario rather than Canada. And our wave is bad enough that we're in lockdown and we've been in lockdown, various versions of lockdown pretty much for the most of this year, the way it's gone, it's been on and off. And currently we can't play golf unless you're essential, you can't work. Here we are in the middle of May, and we're not going to see any change till June. So everybody's perplexed at the fact we're not allowed to play golf because it proved to be safe, and there are no cases that anybody could link to golf. But our provincial government has made the decision that uh, we're children and that we can't be trusted to do anything. They actually shut down playgrounds, and there was such an uproar about playgrounds from parents saying that, come and arrest me. I, I, I can't go without playgrounds. I've been shut down for 14 months. And so that's sort of where we're at. People, Canadians are very compliant. We are very good at working in the greater good. We willingly pay taxes to sort of describe us really well. Canadians and Ontarians in particular right now are, this is the first time I would say we're starting to really push back. Unless we play hockey, we never get angry and um, people are angry. So it's an interesting time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember when COVID first hit the U.S. back in March of 2020, so now over a year ago, just like the uncertainty of it, and especially as it, you know, you related it to golf and playing golf, and I remember for a while there, we weren't even allowed to play golf, and, you know, as frustrating as I was, kind of uh, as the spring was coming and weather was getting nicer, everyone wanted to play golf, seemed like a safe thing to do. I get that there was still so much uncertainty as COVID um came like it was this novel virus but as it proved to be safe like being able to play golf was awesome as the weather got got nice and it was just something to do because there was like nothing else that we could do so i definitely sympathize with with canadians right now and um it's just tough as as the weather turns to be cooped up and not not able to get active and and do those things i I think that's what people are struggling with the most i don't think they mind being extremely limited It's when they're being told they can't do something that was fine last year. And I think that's where golf comes in. The reaction to the provincial government is we have a track record. We also know that there's minimal risk with touch. Golf is well-spaced. The clubs made it mandatory that you could not show up more than 15 minutes before your tee time, which meant the most people you'd ever see around Pro shops or clubhouses were going to be eight maximum at any point. And that's easy to space in golf. Um, There were no practice facilities. There were no restaurant facilities. It it was, uh, we're just confused. 
Yeah, I mean, I think in the U.S. especially, some of the rules have become so arbitrary. And that's what's frustrating to people because it's like, where's the logic, right? And as you just described, it's been pretty much proven to be safe. And without getting into the politics of it back home in the U.S., it's just like it gets to a point where it's like enough is enough and we need to live our lives to some degree. Just give us an inch, right? It's like a lot of things in life. If you want people to buy in, you may set rules and people will abide by the rules. But you usually have to provide something for them as well to incentivize them. So if we can play golf, but we can't travel and we can't work, it's okay. I can At least I can use this to get through. Or a good example is kids' soccer and baseball provide a set of rules. Just everybody's masked from the moment they showed up to the moment they leave, except for the kids when they're on the field. And I think just allow the parents and allow the children to have something to look forward to. I, again, I, I, I'm not going to say any, any of this is zero risk. It's just that we know that the risks are at a minimum. So I think that's where Ontarians are frustrated is you can take most things away. That's fine. We, we kind of see the big picture, but give us something. And with a lot of people, they're saying golf is such an obvious sport, probably more obvious than even some of the kids' sports too. It just, we can't think of anything that's safer outdoors. Yeah, totally get that. But I guess on a lighter note, we'll we'll move on to um, something that's more fun to talk about. So I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, I ask everyone who comes on to just, you know, hear about how you got introduced to the game of golf and um, how that led you to where you are today um, as, you know, an, an architect and, and someone who renovates and reshapes a lot of these courses. So um, I would say I got interested, funny enough, watching the Pebble Beach Pro-Am with my father when I was about between 10 and 12. Every time that that came on, I used to watch it start to finish. I used to watch golf with my father long before I was interested in the game. And I fell in love with Pebble Beach in particular. I mean, it's probably one of the most glorious places in the world, and particularly when you can see it from above. And so I started to draw the holes and, and started to draw the layout and got interested in the idea. And my father said, you realize that there are people who actually design these. And that sparked an interest that led to him signing me up to play golf. And um, in the end, my father and I traveling quite extensively and me pursuing from the age of 13, being a golf course architect, and then being naive enough not to realize that's a very hard path. And then being lucky enough to get hired for being passionate uh, inexperienced but passionate, and then just getting opportunities. So even though I'm 55, I still every once in a while look backwards and go, I can't believe that happened in hindsight. So I'm lucky. I love what I do and I care a lot about what I do. So it's a really fun way to go through life. Work is not work for me. It is for other people. I'm Dealing with people can be entertaining, but because people are people, um, even golf. Um, but generally, I enjoy every day. So it's, it's a very fun path. Can you tell me about that first opportunity you had? It's funny. I, it happened sort of twice. So the first one was I actually had a club hire me at 16 because of a mutual friend to put together a plan. I, they paid me next to nothing. And I actually got to build a green and hand rake the green and everything else. I was 17 at the time. And so that was the first one. But the first real opportunity was um, a fellow named Doug Carrick hired me and I ended up working for him for 17 years. I actually worked for him part time when I was in university, working on some stuff for him while I was going to school. And so I had gone to see him on construction sites and hounded him a little bit, not a big bit, but I made myself seen quite a bit <laughs> and he was quite welcoming. And then he ended up hiring me and I ended up working with him for quite some time. So that gave me the opportunity to learn from him, but also over time, as the business grew, it gave me my own projects to work on as well. And that was how I sort of evolved to be a, a designer and then eventually go out on my own after 17 years. I've seen uh, on your website a lot of the projects that you've done, some really cool stuff. But you know, as we were we were saying previously, um, what really interests me the most is your work at Quag Field Club um, on Long Island. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you were approached to to take on that project and what that looked like. But you know, first you were telling me you you know you've 
pretty extensive understanding of the history of the club. So I'd love if you could just walk me through high level some of the details of, of the history there. Okay, I'll start off with how I ended up working there. And that was um, a very prominent architect, uh, and I'm not going to out that person, actually recommended me specifically to do the work. I got a call, I uh, met with the club, started working there, and it had to do with, they actually had a safety issue. Um, so they were interested in looking at the golf course, but they actually had me just come in to meet with them and then look at the safety issue and then decide whether we were going to go any further from there. In a nutshell, that safety issue was trees and that property was fully treed when I first went there. And now the boundaries are treed and there's not a tree, there's barely a tree in the interior. So that was part of the whole process. Uh, so Chester Murray is a member, uh, researched uh, the golf course. So all of this is, is a huge thank you to Chester Murray. Um, he provided this for me. So this isn't my own research. There are a few odds and ends, but this is generally his research. So I just wanted to make that clear. Course actually started off in a slightly different location, but the course as we know it now was laid out by uh, Bendelow in 1990 and opened in 1901. The first three holes that are there um, are essentially the same holes, the same layout as Bendelow's. And then the holes at the end, uh, seven, eight, and nine are the same layout. Four, five, six are not. Golf course was first revised in uh, 1914. Two of the holes, which were original five and six, were leased property. And the lady that had the lease, or the sisters that had the lease, didn't allow golf on Sunday. So they made an arrangement so they could use it Sunday afternoons. And then they just ended, they terminated the lease. So they needed holes. And that's why they built the current four, five, six, were built to replace. As the golf course evolved in the 20s, they brought uh, James Hepburn, who was the pro at uh, National Golf Links. He did some revisions to the golf course, mainly bunkering, did do a little bit of work. And then after that, they brought in uh, Captain Tippett in 26, and uh, he laid out an additional nine. So at one point, Quag was 18 holes. It used to go to the west of where it does now. And then he also did some work to the existing golf course as well. In 33, uh, Hepburn came back and, and did extensive work to the original nine that we know now, including rebuilding greens, um, rebuilt the sixth green and the ninth green. And then the hurricane happened in 1938, and the hurricane was so dramatic that it essentially wiped out the expansion of nine holes. Some of it was left, most of it was gone. And so they returned back to nine holes. And so the nine holes are the original Bendelow holes with the changes to the layout. And then after that, Frank Duane, who used to be Arnold Palmer's partner in 74, came through. He rebuilt the fifth green. He also changed that hole and, and took it out to the edge of um, Shinnecock Bay. And then Stephen Kay in 1999 came through. He rebuilt the fourth green. So the fourth, fifth, and sixth are actually rebuilds by three different people, whereas the Last three holes and the first three holes are largely originals, although there has been some work. And I, I can't remember the details whether any of those greens particularly were rebuilt, um, but essentially you're looking at those original holes. Everybody's had a go at the sixth fairway for drainage, and I'm the fourth person to have a go at the sixth fairway. So I uh, made the changes to the fairway that got rid of the crown shape to it and uh, put all those knuckles and rolls that are in the sixth fairway now. So the idea was just trying to get it to feel a lot more linksy, but also to have the fairway high and dry and, uh, and to make the hole a little bit more like some of the early holes and later holes as well. We removed all the trees a couple of years after I started working there, and that opened everything up. Not every tree in the interior is gone, I don't think, but we're pretty close now. And the idea was, it's like an old Scottish golf course. It begins in town place to the coastline and then returns. It's Shinnecock Bay and not the Atlantic Ocean, but it's still the ocean. And so what I wanted to do was return that journey. So the only thing we've really got to go now is the restorations complete on the first three and last three. And we've got some dunes work to do on the four, five, six to make it so that you slowly move out to Lynx and to the coast or to Shinnecock Bay and then return back into the town in more um, traditional Golden Age style layout. It's actually pre-Golden Age, but anyway. 
And so it's largely been done. Uh, most of the work's been done, and now it's just little things. We've done a few um, dunes restorations, but um, we're not kind of rushing through that. We're just, as opportunities present themselves, and usually it's material presents itself, then we, we start to do a little bit of dunes work. And we'll just slowly pick at that over the next few years. So how long has the process been going for you? Um, and how much longer, you know, do you think until, you know, your work there, I don't know that it's ever done, but is done for, you know, the time being? I would say it's largely done with a couple of caveats. We've got some issues with the fourth green. Uh, the bottom of the bowl is actually too low and deals with uh, flooding. And also it's an area where there's some problems. So we've talked about potentially rebuilding that green but we're not rushing to do it. And then it's just the dunes work, just slowly exposing dunes or or running sand into areas to create. If you think about it, um, rather than cavities for bunkers, think about them being the opposite. The bunkers are actually above playing areas and just open sandy dunes. So that's what we'll restore over time. And I don't think there's really a timeline. I don't think we're too worried about it. I'll keep working there as long as they keep wanting to do things. But at the moment, it plays awfully well. The superintendent has the golf course in unbelievably great shape so that it's bouncy and firm. And I love the fact that it goes from green to brown, not in defined lines, that the edge of the fairways start to brown, the roughs start to go from green to brown. And then by the time you hit the long grasses, it actually all just kind of blends and melds in together. And, and the, the presentation um, of the golf course is exceptional. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I feel like I'm a little bit on for the ride that everybody involved, uh, Peter Embers, the Greens chair, is just a delightful um, leader. And Chester Murray is sort of my foundation for beginning to be involved, but also uh, giving me sort of the, the basics in the background to, to work from. It's just been really remarkable. Yeah, I'd love to get into more of the specific restoration and and alterations that you've made. So you talked about first coming in, safety issue with the trees. Can you tell me specifically what that issue was? And um, has that made the course play more traditionally, um, like, lengthier as as a result of taking those trees out? You know, I'd, I'd imagine, right? Yes. Could you get into that a bit? Yeah, so the roadway that goes through it, I think it's Quanticut Lane. I'm, I'm trying to remember what it's called had trees. Um, so the holes leading to it, both the first and ninth play across the road. And they were both tree-lined with pines. And there were trees along the road as well. And what happened was the cars had to sort of try to gauge where the players were. And the players had to guess whether the cars were at the property lines. And so my first recommendation was just get rid of everything. And if we get rid of everything, we can see the cars from the tees and from the fairways and the cars can see us. But more important than that is the walkers and the, because it's it's right away, the walkers and the people on bicycles in the community can see and, and that just improves safety dramatically. So that was really foundational step one. But when I went around, I, I had said that really all of this should go like every pine you see between every hole, this should just go. And so in the removals, they started with that right away to fix their issue, but they just kept going and, and started removing the pine trees and opening things up. And, oh, my God, did the golf course ever come to life? And it became linksy by feel. Uh, uh, the golf course has always played linksy. I, I do think it's one of the best presentations I've ever seen of a golf course. Because of the nature of how he takes care of the golf course, he was hand-walking greens anyway, if you go and look at those greens, the fronts are square, perfectly square, like square tees. And that's all presentation because that's what we found on the old aerials, that the first green was actually square. Second green was almost a perfect circle, the punch ball par three. And then we've squared up the front of the third and the ninth was another one that was perfectly square as well. And we've just tried to put that back. That's so cool. As you speak to the roads um, and the safety issue, I'm just curious, how busy is that road in the community? And um, were they having, you know, issues with people actually getting hit or cars or was it more just trying to prevent that from happening? It's not that busy a road because it's not a main road. It's just a road between two sections of the community. The main road's the other side of the clubhouse. Um, but people do, uh, Quag is a, a very 
impressive place. Some of the houses around there are combination of history and then um, some really um, amazing architecture. And then if you're into scale, the scale of some of those mansions is remarkable. I'm not used to houses that big. (laughs) And so I think a lot of people like to come out to that community and just see. And so which means they'll drive through a spot like that. And you can drive through a golf course. So, I mean, people do that at Shinnecock Hills too. I assume that road's still open. Um, they'll just drive through because you can go through a U.S. Open golf course in your car. And I'm sure that's frustrating for the people at Shinnecock sometimes. But uh, it, this just made it a lot safer. But the big one for me was bikes. Uh, while I was there, I watched um, uh, some people ride through, and it made me realize that it's far more than cars. Now, when you were removing trees, um, obviously said it was more of a safety issue, but I'd imagine that um, if some of the holes were heavily, you know, treated prior to to your work there, some of the fairways were more defensible. There's a little bit more danger um, for, you know, you know, hitting your drive or, or whatever. How did you make sure to keep the course playing difficult and keep the greens defensible and keep the course fun to play and challenging while, you know, taking out all the trees is you know, I'd imagine the wind became much more of a factor um, off the bay. You know, maybe I'm projecting, but would love to hear about that. No, you've answered the question yourself. As the trees came out, the the wind started to play a little bit more of a role in the game. And that's the one thing about Lynx golf is unless there's no wind, um, there's nothing like Lynx golf where a 350-yard par four can be two drivers and a 400-yard par four can be almost reachable. It did start to play that way. Anything that quarters becomes really tricky because the greens are not uh, large. So now you're starting to have to adjust for the wind. The other end of it is the trees, they were pines, and it wasn't like it was a forest. So all it meant was if you had a tree directly in line, yes, you probably would have just put the ball back in play. But as players, we all know the worst thing sometimes we get is an opportunity to try and hit a heroic shot because it's that heroic shot from a, a questionable lie and a bad angle that bounces over the green into a really horrible spot and turns into a double bogey. I've always had a long argument that I've put forward to really good players when they start to talk about tree removal and, and difficulty that I'm quite certain that if I get to follow through on this and I also get to remove some of the rough around the greens that contains your shots, that you're going to see more double bogeys than you've ever had in the last. You may make one because you've hit a tree in it, but for the most part, I know my father is a great player. He would just, trees became pitch outs because he was just a really smart player and, and the strength of his game was consistency. But he put the ball back in play and never took chances. And he, I remember playing Piners. The biggest thing he kept saying to me was, stop taking chances. This is not a golf course for chances. And once you remove the trees, bring on the doubles. Yeah, it's funny you say that, you know, as just a recreational golfer, but who, someone who's been playing for a while, um, I can't help but think about how many times you just see it on TV or whatever, someone hitting some ridiculous shot and thinking like, because you did it one time on this hole from this shot that you can do it every time. And you're right. You know, speaking to what what you said about your dad there, you know, it makes me laugh. Making bogey is going to be a hell of a lot better um, when you make, you know, two bogeys than a couple doubles when you thought you were going to have a look at birdie. So, I mean, it's just boring golf is how you're going to probably score, right? Well, I'm going to give you a golf architecture junkie story that you're going to love. So Doug Carrick, who I used to work for, um, played back-to-back rounds in San Francisco with Alice Dye and then Pete Dye. Alice was an amazing player, but had one of the longest histories of being an amazing player that I can think of. She was a top amateur for 30 years, maybe even 40 years, which is, I mean, other than Marlene Stewart Street, I can't think of anybody who had that longevity. Uh, He played with um, Alice and he was going to go try hit a ball out the trees and and bend the ball. And Alice walked over to him and said, Doug, what are you doing? And um, he said, well, I'm going to try bend it. And she said, that's not how you play golf. You just play for your shot. You've got a great short game. You're a really good player. And, and you, you'll get up and down with as good as your game is you're going to get up and down from a hundred yards, probably 
55 to 60% of the time, that's good enough. And if you can get it to a better spot, you'll get up and down more. And every time he hit the ball in the trees or into the rough, she always walked over and had a look at what his shot was. And Doug shot it. It was either 74 or 75, whatever the round was. So one of the better, he, he was a terrific player. When I first met him, he was three, four handicap. And so he had this wonderful round and he played a, the Olympic course uh, the next day. And with Pete, and Pete was a fabulous player, but super aggressive. And so he went to pitch a ball out on, the, and that's a golf course where you really should pitch the ball out because it's dangerous um, and the trees are big. And Pete said, you can hit that shot. And Pete talked him into taking chances all day and he finished up his round and he had 88 and he was talking to somebody about the two rounds and then realized it all came down to smart golf versus heroic golf. No, yeah, I can't help but laugh because um, I find that my game personally, like I I can get it going in the low 80s, but I can get really, really bad um, because I, you know, it's not as fun to play uh, boring golf, but you know, when you're coming in on 18 with a much better number, it's a lot more fun. So uh, I definitely, definitely have a lot of respect for that. And that's interesting insight, you know, Um, it seems obvious, but it's just hard when you're out there to actually get yourself to commit to play that way, right? I played in the uh, men's section. I got to the point because I was trying to score for the team. I got to the point where I was laying up because we played up. I laid up most of the time, just trying to sort of keep everything as simple as possible. And I always counted by doing that. It wasn't that fun. I prefer not playing with a scorecard. And then if I feel like taking a chance, take a chance. And I find the game a lot more interesting without a card. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very personal. So if you're out there to compete and play in a men's league or whatever it is, you know, maybe boring golf is is for you. But if you're just out there slapping it around, having fun, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, hit that 280-yard three-wood uphill into the wind. (laughs) Well, I had mentioned my dad. Um, One of the fascinating things, one of the greatest lessons I ever learned on architecture was we played Pinehurst together and I was a teenager and it's by far the best I've ever played was that period of my life. And I played really well and hit the ball really well, but I did not score. I should have broke 80 that day, but I triple bogey on eight by hitting it over the back of that green and then failing to get up and up and up and up and down because that's I kept having the ball return. I had the whole John Daly experience. And my father, I thought, hadn't played well. I thought he hadn't hit the ball well, but he was, he was low 70s, um, but he'd barely hit any greens. So he hit the fives. Um, but he played short of most of the fours and he'd even played short of some of the threes, but I thought he was mishitting his shots because at that point he was still pretty solid as either late forties, early fifties, and his game was starting to slide, but he still could putt and chip like a demon. But he had this wonderful round where he got up and down all day. And so I was really frustrated. And I said, you hit the ball like shit. I hit the ball great. And yet you beat me easily, which by the way, I'd never beat my father playing golf. He said, no, I played probably the most perfect round of golf I've played in years. I left the ball exactly where I felt I could manage the golf course. I'd figured out after playing the first hole, I figured out I couldn't hit these greens. They were just too hard and I don't hit the ball high enough and I don't spin the ball, but I can bounce the ball and I can chip. And he just got up and down all day. He was particularly good on the fives um, because he could get it down to a short iron. And so he hit all the fives. Um, but he didn't play for, I think it's 15. He didn't even play for the par three green. He just intentionally played down into the ball on the right. I remember too, he played to a spot in front of the green and I, I thought he'd actually just miss hit it. And he'd scampered the ball all the way up to the edge of the green. He played a runner as well, not even flown it there, but he played a little runner going in. But my dad had a great ground game because he grew up playing in South of England on a course that was windswept. I just never figured it out, but it also, it unlocked two things for me. It unlocked strategy but it also opened up the whole idea of if the ground's in play it can be devastating for a good player but it also can be accommodating for an average player and at that point Pinehurst number two became forever my foundation on what's great architecture so the best way I can put it is I can take anybody there they could be a 24 handicap they will not lose the ball and they will enjoy themselves and they will play to what they can play to and I can take a single digit and it will beat their living brains in, particularly if it's dry. It doesn't need to be fast if it's dry. They will have trouble shooting their handicap. How many golf courses can you describe that way? It is almost the perfect golf course as a model for public golf. 
Wow, that's uh, that's great insight. I'm I'm glad you shared that because you know I I never thought about that. Haven't been lucky enough to get down to Pinehurst yet, but you know hoping to do so. Um, you know eventually do, but th- again. Quag works exactly the same way. Quag is like a mini Pinehurst. It's a gentle piece of ground. Ground's in play. Um, greens can be tricky. Um, you can play it passively. You can play it aggressively. You better have your A game if you're going to play aggressive. But kids can get around. Adults can get around who struggle. But if you're a good player, it's actually hard to, to nail together a good score because a combination of win, bounce, firmness, and again, it all comes down to how John keeps the golf course. Uh, Super's John Bradley, by the way. He is just a master. So between him and, and Peter and how they present the golf course for the members, it's perfect for everybody. Yeah, can we can we talk about the greens a bit? Um, I'm curious to hear again, you know, as the wind came into play, right, that made the course more defensible. Do they keep the greens running pretty fast and, and hard? In typical Lynx fashion, what what did you find with the with the greens there? Firm, firm and rolling fast. It, they're they're not. I mean, if you go to some of the super high end private clubs that are also right around the area, like there's some really heavyweights around the area. They don't try to keep them as fast as that. If they start rolling that speed, it just comes down to dryness and the fact that he keeps great greens and it's just they've dried and crisped up and and started to roll a little faster. But they don't push the greens to a point where they become uncomfortable. But he does keep everything firm and fast. Um, and it's irrigated to play firm and fast. And because of that, it means it's like a Lynx course. Any Lynx course you play in the UK, on a damp day, they're not overly fast. And on a dry day, they are fast. And on a windy day, they are freaking lightning. And that's how that, that golf course plays. But it also means the conditions are exceptional and consistent. He's well regarded by his peers. And I mean, as I said... The, his peers in the area are heavyweights in the superintendent end of things, but I've met a number of them for different reasons, and, and they, they have nothing but wonderful things to say for how the golf course is kept. And what I enjoy is, because I know a lot of those guys from, for different reasons, is they all go over there to play. They love going over there to play. So it speaks volumes for, for a long time. It was one of the, the hidden secrets, particularly of Long Island. Now it's not. I know uh, a lot of people who've uh, gone out there to play. As long as the timing's right, they've always been fairly accommodating to somebody who's really serious. If you write them a nice letter, what uh, what are your favorite features of of the uh, of the course now? And you know, what's your favorite thing that you've been able to to do with uh, with the team over there to um, improve the course? The punch bowl second is just a one off that I'm. It's like a, a short because the green is surrounded by sand, but it's a punch bowl. It's just a really interesting combination of concepts. And so I find that one's a giggle for me. I can't wait to get there. Um, For some reason, I don't find that green as much as I would like to, but um, I just really look forward to playing that shot. The tee shot on the third is I'm long enough that I can can get there with a little bit of luck. It's the worst possible play to hit a a driver. This is the 270-yard par four. Yeah. And you just can't help yourself, but give it a go, even though the angles are kind of working away from you. And, and if you miss, uh, if you get, unless you can hit it up to the green, if you miss and get in one of those fairway traps, you're, you're toast. But I, I just, I find that uh, super exciting. Uh, I, I think just getting um, for things that we've done, I think returning the eighth green back to the original green for some reason have been expanded to include all the approach beyond the bunkers. And it was supposed to be you throw it over top uh, like a, I think the term is steeple, uh, the the horse term where you uh, steeple jump. You throw it over the top of those bunkers and you're supposed to use the downslope and run that ball into the green. So you use the downslope to meet the upslope. And then the trick is not to push or pull it into the side bunkers. Just putting that back together and removing all the trees from around that and just getting that green site back to its original form was something I enjoyed. I had a lot of fun shaping the six green. I was out there in a sand pro for the entire day, pushing things around, making those knuckles and rolls. That was fun just because that's nutty stuff to do. And a day spent um, being swept by the sand and arbitrarily making shapes and forms. And it, there, there's some silliness and fun and 
and childlike qualities to that that you can't possibly explain how much fun that is. What was your approach in working on a nine hole track as opposed to like an 18 hole track, right? So you talked about a lot of the heavyweights in the area, national. Beth Page is is a little bit of a drive away, but you know, there's a couple others. And you're talking about how it kind of stands on its own. How has it been able to attract people as a nine-hole course um, and, and kind of stand on its own? I know there's, you know, different routing um, for if you're going to play two nines. How, how is the course able to stand on its own there? So um, to give you kind of an insight to the membership, each of the people on the Greens Committee is a member of whether it's West Hampton, South National, or Shinny. Each club was well represented, but they play more there. And the reason they play more there is it's short, fun, quirky. You see as many kids and parents go out as you see groups of either men or ladies. Just a nice, pleasant mix of the community, and it's very casual. I think that's why a golf course like that stands out is because it's accommodating to anyone. Um, so it doesn't matter how you play age, sex, it just doesn't matter. It just accommodates. But the other end of it is good is good, great is great. So it happens to be a really quietly great golf course. And so it means it's fun to play at all times. And because it's a little shorter, it means you may get it going a little bit, which you may struggle a little bit more. If you remember at Shinnecock, for example, Shinnecock's always going to be tough as nails to play. And it's unlikely you're ever going to really get on a roll there. But if you're a member of both, you're going to play at Quag and uh, you're going to get on a roll at Quag sometimes. And so that's fun. Um, I, I know the one fellow, while he has some really wonderful memberships, that's where he plays all his golf. That's where he enjoys. Everybody's just a lot more relaxed and there's nothing like a quick nine in the evening out there. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about courses where you can carry your bag and you can show up 20 minutes before your tea time on a weeknight and probably get out after work and, you know, not have to wait in line and not everyone's taking things too, too seriously. You know, me personally, um, as much as I'd love to walk a course like Oakmont, like if I'm going to go out there, I'm going to shoot 110, 120 out there. Yeah, I'll enjoy the walk. It's, it'll be beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of history. But like, I don't know that I'm truly going to enjoy that as much as like finding some course like Quag where I can go out and just have a good time. And, you know, holes like that 270 par four, it's like everything's telling you not to go for it. But, you know, you can have some fun and, and hit some shots like that. Um, so it's just I guess it's just a different experience, right? Well, and and the joy of nine holes that we don't talk about too much is say I've tried to grind my way around the front because I kind of had a good start. And me being me, that means at some point I've I've spit the bit and it's not worked out because that's most of my golf. But to come to one of those holes where I've decided to lay up and say, you know what, I'm going to go this time or I'm going to try to reach the five this time rather than playing because I really wish I did that last time through. Or the other end of it is if I've worked with Mike Weir and I remember I asked Mike about how do you shoot a good score? And he said, when you're on, what do you do? And I said, usually I try to be a little more careful about where I go. And he went, that's mistake number one. He said, when you're on, the first instinct needs to be, you need to get greedy. He says, you're going to throw away a bunch of rounds before it'll work out, but you need to be greedy. You need to, when you're on a roll, you're on a roll. You need to see how far that role can go instead. And so it would be nice to go around there and, and discover uh, rounds going well and decide that I've reached three. I'm better than I expected to be through 11 holes. I'm going to give this a go and see if I can really start to move the needle to, to have something special happen today. Nine holes gives you that opportunity. 18 holes does not. 18, it's 18 experience, fresh experiences. Nine allows you to make a horrible decision and then write it or to have a wonderful result and then have some balance to that round by crushing it. And I kind of enjoy that about nine. There, there's a charm. I also find with nine holes, I've, so we've got a really great nine holder by Thompson around here. And I don't feel guilty about um, needing to return to work or needing to get home to do something with the family when it's nine holes. 
it almost gives you the option to say, I'm playing well, I'm going to play 18 today, or I'm not playing so good. And I actually would rather get a few things done at home and making that decision. It, it builds in mental flexibility, which is actually as good for you as a person. No, absolutely. I, I think that's a great point. You know, it's demanding of your life um, or of your free time rather to, to go play a four, four and a half hour round sometimes. So, you know, it can be nice to just get out there quickly. And sometimes nine is, is just enough. So my final uh, year that I was at the club here, I had 34 rounds, 24 were nine holes and 10 were 18. And it just, it goes to show nine hole golf course probably would have done me better because um, it's probably a better fit. I'm just too busy during the year or feel that I need to get work done for people. Um, it's a personality thing. So I, when somebody's asked me to do something, I need to get it done. It's just, so nine holes works for me. I, I can justify playing first light or at last light. Uh, the lovely thing about playing there, I've played there a couple of times at last light. You can get around that golf course in about an hour and 10 minutes. Wow. Because everything's so tight together. As long as you're not knocking it all over the place. Um, I've never found it difficult to find balls in the fescues there. So as long as you're not knocking it all over the place, if you're by yourself at last light, you can start at twilight. You can almost grind it all the way home. And I've, I've done that after working one day. How nice is that, you know, during the work week or whatever to, to be able to just get a little break to your day there, right? I guess the last thing I would ask you, Ian, is um, you've done tons of restoration work. Um, and so you've done a Tilling Hass, you've done a few Donald Rosses, Walter Travis, this Bendelo. How do you approach maintaining the history of these courses, right? And people are so nostalgic. Um, I'd imagine in the case of Quag, right, there were plenty of members who were like, had like some sort of nostalgic um, connection to those trees you were removing or the way things were. How do you make sure that you're maintaining the sanctity of these places while also giving, you know, improving the course and, and giving it kind of a, like a new flavor and uh, your, own, your own spin? So generally, I'm working with history. So the nice part for me was if you pull up old aerials of quag and old photographs, you can see the trees weren't there, that the trees were actually a more recent addition. So when you can show people their history and show them examples of images or aerials to indicate that you're actually just uh, returning the history, uh, people are very supportive of, of that idea. You're talking about updating or modernizing. I, I'm a big believer in um, if we've got a better way to do a, to put together a detail, I will use better details because details are hidden. And so I want it to look like it was built in the 30s, but I want it to function like it was detailed in the uh, 2000s. And that's sort of my philosophy. Originally, when I was doing this, I used to be very, very adamant on restoration with very little alteration. Uh, there's a fellow named Bruce Hepner who's a really phenomenal architect, a golf course architect. And Bruce and I had a conversation the one day about how original do you need to be? And we talked through that and it made me more comfortable with the idea. Of, I've also had the same conversation with Gil Hans as well um, about I'm more comfortable now with moving a few fairway bunkers around if there's no landforms, if there's no natural landforms they're cut into and they're not in their original locations anyway, and just trying to make a little bit of accommodation. But I generally just try to present it the way it was. There's a charm and a, a wonderful feel sometimes when a, a bunker can be carried by everybody because it's not in that ideal 275 or whatever. I remember Thompson had a bunker at Jasper Park that uh, he built 80 yards off, to, off of the tee and he was asked why he did that. And he said, because at that length, there isn't anybody who can't make the carries. And everybody should enjoy the thrill of carrying a ball over a bunker, not just the person who hits it 250. It's the same idea. Sometimes some of those things in, in odd locations creates an incredible amount of charm. And that's why I try to leave as much as possible. So I may entertain adding something or if I can hide the fact that we've moved it to make it make sense. But at Quag, we didn't. It's played straight, and it should be because it's it's a little bit of a wonderful time capsule, and it oozes charm that is well beyond me. And so the only thing I could do is get in the way of something that's already great. 
I don't want to do that. By the way, architecture should never be perfect. So the, one of the biggest mistakes made in architecture is architects try to make everything, rationalize everything to perfection so that bunker has to come into play or a, they try to get every detail. The problem is if you try to do every detail at a certain point, you take away all the warmth and you start to make what you present cold and cold doesn't have any appeal. Imperfections are actually what we like about woodwork. If you look at a really great piece of old furniture, it's not perfect, but it's it's that handmade and slight imperfections and 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 the fact that you can tell it's handmade. Once it's perfect, it, it become it looks machine made, and once it's perfect, it, it starts to become a little more sterile. So one of the things about a place like Quag is sometimes you leave things that are not perfect because it's what creates the charm. And you know, if you try to put everything where it logically should be by somebody's rationale or somebody's list making of what's great architecture, you'll actually undo it. It's like a house of cards. You'll actually pull it to pieces. And then, yes, everything will be in the, the right location strategically, but the golf hole will not have the same charm. It will not have the same warmth. It will not compel you or draw you quite the same way. It's a little bit more cold. And so that's why you've got to make decisions sometimes to leave things just to play the way they are. No, that's well said. There's something so cool about history and like golf courses with really, really, really long histories and thinking about like, wow, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, people were playing, you know, standing right where I'm standing and and hitting these shots. And yeah, like as equipment has improved right (laughs) markedly over the last even just 10, 20 years, um, you know, people are hitting the ball further and whatnot. But it's interesting you talk about, you know, carrying an 80 yard bunker. I remember being out in Scotland and thinking um, some of the features were like not coming into play for probably most players. Um, but there's just something so cool to see that like things are as they were to, you know, a hundred years ago plus. That's so cool. So one of the smartest things I did in 220. So just before COVID happened, it's funny how some of the conversations have come around full circle. Uh, I went down to Pinehurst and um, a a friend of mine had called me and said, I'm left-handed and called me and said, I've got a fellow down here who restores clubs who's got a few left-handed clubs that he's collected for somebody and restored. And then the person's fresh aired him. So he's got these clubs, he can't use them. Do you want them? And I said, yes, I'll take them. He said, well, do you want me to find out how much? And I said, no, whatever his deal was, I'll take them. And he said, well, I, I think he'll give you a break. And I said, no, tell him whatever the right price is. I, 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 the answer is yes. I don't need to hit him. I'll take him. I've wanted some for a while. So I went down there and um, the two of them collected me a whole series of clubs. So I actually have nine now. And I got to play mid pines, pine needles and piners number two. Oh, and a dormy club as well. So even a modern uh, with hickory clubs. And you know what? Stuff comes into play all of a sudden when you cannot hit the ball that far. And it was fun to play from the old sets of tees. So we were playing about 6,000 yards. I was fascinated by what was coming into play, but also what sometimes was coming into play where if I could carry it, uh, I remember one of the holes, I made a birdie in my first round at Piner's number two. And all I had to do with carrying a bunker, I hit the ball over the bunker because I knew that was the play. Well, lo and behold, the ball ran all the way to the hole. So, yeah, but I didn't actually realize the slopes worked that way because I never would have played for that spot because I wouldn't, I would have tried to flown it. Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating for you, right, to play with Hickory Clubs and you kind of have, a, have like an extreme connection to the real old history of the game. And uh, I can't help but think about a guy I spoke with, you know, a month or two ago, Pete Flory, who's been helping Tom Doak restore the Lido. Um, he was, you know, on Golf Club Atlas you know, posting on the message board and, you know, basically restored it um, virtually in a 3D program. Um, and he's a scratch player. And he was telling me that, you know, he plays in a lot of these hickory outings and he sees this 480 yard par five and he's thinking, I'm going to dominate the field today. I'm going to tear this course up. 
But he was like, you know, I didn't really consider the fact that, you know, instead of flying the ball off the T270 carry, like I was carrying the ball 220, 230. So it's just like, it's hard to imagine that today after you're hitting your hybrid further than that. And the biggest shock is that you lack the high loft of clubs. And so you get to that spot inside of that and you realize I don't have any wedges. And it's really an eye-opening experience. So I also have this muscle back chipping iron. And so at 75 yards, I'm using my muscle back chipping iron, which is short, um, incredibly low weighted. Um, the blade is about the half the height of a ball, but I can, I can play it from 75 yards with a punch. And it's remarkable what the ball flight looks like. I've gotten, I've never hit anything that hits a ball like that. I can take a full swing with that thing. It's the loft of a four iron, but it hit because the weight's so low, it hits the ball straight up in the air and spins it. But it's just a weird club to swing fully. And I've always been afraid of breaking it too. But it, it opens you up to a whole different series of shots. Now, I played a golf course with a lot of rough and a lot of bunkers with them, and I did not enjoy the experience as much. But I'd rather just have my regular clubs. It just asked too much. And the other thing was I broke a shaft in the rough. And that's the one thing you have to be really super careful of. You can't use them just anywhere. If, if it's thick, then you've got to either swing really slow or you've just got to pitch some stuff out just to save the clubs. Well, Ian, thanks so much for your time. Um, I'd encourage people to check out Golf Club Atlas. There's a lot of pictures of the Quag Field Club uh, on there. You can can see some of the work. You can also um, see some of it on Ian's website. Um and uh, is there anywhere else people can find you online, Ian, or uh, just your website, the best place? I do want to, if you don't mind, I would like to thank um, Peter Ember, Green's Chair, who's as responsible as anybody for this. John Bradley, the superintendent, who's definitely responsible for all the, the heavy lifting. And Chester Murray as well, who's on the first Green's Committee. I'm forgetting some of the other people on Green's Committees, but I just want to give a shout out to them because you know what, when you work with great people, um, a lot of times the great work actually has little to do with you and has a lot to do with them. So that's, Quag has just been an absolute joy in my life. How cool. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. A pleasure being on. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's, it's nice to talk about a course like Quag as opposed to something super well-known and super famous because I think these golf courses are equally as interesting. <laughs>